You're listening to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 87. Today, we're continuing our collaboration between NASA and the USGS, the U.S. Geological Survey, with a series of podcast episodes highlighting our work together. In this episode, we go through the history between NASA and the USGS, including a period when the USGS was embedded with NASA's Biospheric Sciences branch. Our guests are Jim Brass, branch chief and research scientist in the Earth System Science Biospheric Science branch at NASA Ames. We also have Bruce Coughlin, who's with the Earth Science Division, working on high-resolution remote sensing at NASA Ames, but also Susan Benjamin, USGS Director of the Western Geographic Science Center, who also worked on land use mapping from remotely sensed images. From orbit to core, both NASA and USGS are taking in numerous data points to better understand our favorite planet. So without further ado, here is our conversation with Jim Brass, Susan Benjamin, and Bruce Coughlin. start off the podcast kind of in the same way where we want to know like like how did you join NASA like how did you end up in Silicon Valley so let's just kind of get to know each other a little bit better but Jim why don't you go for it tell us a little bit about yourself Minnesota winter nice February 1979 it's snowing it's cold I get a call from NASA Ames really? to say we need someone in forestry that knows a little bit about satellites and I went oh I did that. <laughs> hey, do you want to come out for an interview? Did I mention it was snowing, it was cold? And in was February in Minnesota. <laughs> and so a week later, I'm on a plane. I come out here. I do an interview. And about three weeks later, I'm working at NASA Ames. And it was unbelievable. First, you get off the plane in San Francisco. It's like 55 degrees. Yeah. It's not snowing. The leaves are out. It was just, it was like, wow, I'm in heaven at this point. So it's been fun ever since. There's no no doubt about that. So so that's how I got started. So tell a little bit, like, what, what did you study? Where did you go to school? Some University of, of Minnesota. I was in forestry and ecology and chemistry. And um, literally, when I got my undergrad degree, there weren't any jobs in forestry. I always thought I wanted to be out in the woods running around counting trees. It just didn't happen. So my advisor said, hey, there's this remote sensing thing going on, and, and uh, why don't you come back to grad school? And you took the three courses, you got A's in all those, you did really well. You could even teach one in grad school. So I went into grad school, I took a lot of courses, went over into engineering at the University of Minnesota, took some courses over there. And that's when sort of the call came. I'd gotten my master's, I was working on a PhD, and then NASA called, and I went, hmm, <laughs> see, I could stay here and finish a PhD and go to California. Out to California, I went. And see, I get a kick out of it because, like, typically you think of like forestry. You're thinking like the Forestry Service, or absolutely. You know, it may make a little bit more sense, like Susan being over in USGS. But tell us a little bit about your about your path and how you ended up over here. My path and how I ended up over here. <laughs> <laughs> tell, us, um, tell us about you, okay, Susan. Okay, I, <laughs> Don't I be shy. started started going to college and then decided I didn't really want to go to college. Nice. So I, so I dropped out after a year, and I ended up working for a temporary agency, and they sent me to work at a place called IAC, the Institute for Advanced Computation, which was the group that ran the ILIAC-4 supercomputer here at NASA Ames. Oh, wow. And I worked at a variety of extremely menial jobs for a, long, <laughs> for a while, and... Um, 
one of the things that I eventually got to do was work with some people from USDA and help mm-hmm. install a big software package on the ILIAC and on the PDP-10s called Editor that was used to um, analyze uh, Landsat imagery. And um, I was starting to think about going back to college, and the guy who installed it had gone to San Jose State Geography yeah. Department, a guy named Bill Newland. Okay. So I checked them out, and I and I decided, well, I'm, I'm a, I'll go back to school. I'll work I'll work, work part time. And um, after a semester, they said, one of my professors said, "Are you interested in a part time job? Because there's these guys who are working over it at." NASA Ames for USGS, and they could use some student help. So I went and interviewed and, and got a student position, and uh, things took off from there. I, well, I would so, imagine. So I joined, I joined the USGS group, a small group um, that was uh, attached to the branch that Jim was working for, which I don't remember what it was called back then, but now it's SGE. Now it's SGE. Um, yeah. And uh, we did Landsat analysis of a wide variety of things and worked closely with both that branch and then what was the high altitudes mission branch that Bruce was attached to. So, and Bruce, tell us a little bit about yourself. How do you know, like, how did you end up at NASA? How did you get involved with these crazy people over here? Well, <laughs> I uh, knew all these people that uh, Susan just mentioned. Bill Newland and Susan and quite a few other folks were on this USGS project. But... I went to San Jose State as well, and I'd just gotten out of the Army and GI Bill and trying to build a resume, I guess you'd say. So I went and got a master's in geography, the same department that Susan attended. Uh, and we had a, I had a mentor, I hope everyone else agrees with Dr. Dick Ellison. And he, I was off taking some courses up in Reno for the Army, and I got a phone call, there's a job at NASA Ames. So I came down and visited the Altitude Missions Branch, and we'd already visited there several times just as a student group and talked to the manager and Bob Ekstrand, and after a few minutes, he just said, you're hired. And <laughs> the, that group flew imaging systems. So we had mapping cameras we put on the U-2s and C-130, other aircraft, and then it was our wow. job to catalog all that and even do some analysis. And so that was where I got my start and then have moved on since. The Airborne Science Program and our particular group, the sensor facility, builds and operates imaging systems, digital imaging systems mm-hmm. that fly on the aircraft. And they're and oftentimes prototypes to something that will go on a satellite and or they are used as calibration systems to underfly the satellites with their imaging system. They compare what we do with our instrument and the orbiting instrument and check that they agree in what they're getting. And uh, they can then sort of, we can calibrate our systems and then compare them to what's going on on the satellite. And that helps to fine tune everything in terms of the data they're collecting from the satellite. Yeah, I'd mentioned it before. Before we started, you know, it was we've been doing a series of NASA and USGS stuff. How I find fascinating of like the different layers of data, where NASA you automatically think of the satellites. Okay, that makes sense. But it's gathering data on the Earth. But then you have the the airborne sciences. So let's 
throw instruments on on airplanes where you can choose you know you're not just waiting for an orbit you can like go in and and get more data points but then USGS and like you USGS know, is on the ground tags. <laughs> digging things up measuring <laughs> measuring tracing animals around you know but the US forest service USGS you guys have been known to use our data you know for your research and so it's all the layers of yeah. that data. It just gives you more holistic or a bigger picture. Or it's just like, you know, I think the ongoing tagline we've been using is like from the orbit to the core, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. just covering the earth to, to better understand it. But I mean, you guys all obviously go way back. So why don't we talk a little about this? How did you guys meet? What did you guys first start working on together? Well, I, I can, you know, USGS, I, I can say my career was built on USGS. And the excitement of coming out to, to California, especially Silicon Valley, at that point, because USGS was up in Menlo Park. And back in, I'm going to say, the mid to late 60s, there was a, guy, a geologist named Bill Pacora, mm-hmm. who okay. actually, in my opinion, came up with the idea for Landsat. You know, okay. NASA had put up weather satellites, and so we're looking at the globe from sort of way out. And I think it was Bill that said, you know, it's important to look at the Earth, and we need more resolution. And so, NASA, why don't you start looking at coming up with a series of satellites to specifically look at the Earth? And I think it took him from the mid-60s to, well, the launch of the first Landsat was 1972, to convince everyone and, of course, line up funding to put Mm -hmm. up a series of satellites like Landsat that, you know, we still have up there. So I can pin my whole career to using Landsat data to doing all kinds of stuff. And, of course, you never stop with the satellite data. You sort of start there. But Bill and USGS uh, made it happen. And so when I came here, there was a few USGS people literally embedded in the branch that I came to work with. It was like the best of all possible worlds. You had the local experts, the USGS folks. You had a bunch of NASA scientists working. You had Bruce Coughlin and the aircraft program there. And so you had it all. And then, you know, Susan mentioned the ILIAC-4. This was like the supercomputer uh, You know, in the U.S. at this point. What we're able to do is collect satellite data, collect field data, put that together, and then run it, process it on this huge computer. And so we didn't waste, you know, days waiting for a job to come back. We got it back in a couple minutes. That was, I think we were unique, I'll say, at least in the U.S. Yeah, that was a real resource. It was incredible. I mean, we could crank stuff out that that my colleagues at at other sites could, could never go through. You know, we could... We could really we could do things like put together a mosaic of, of 57 Landsat scenes over the Ogallala Aquifer, and then we could do it again. We could do it one year, and we yeah. could do it do it five years later, and, and and pull out all the information on where the irrigated agriculture is. So but, this partnership, yeah. the USGS and NASA, just worked yeah. here fabulously. You know, we did large projects. We weren't doing single scenes. As Susan mentioned, you know, 57. We did the entire state of California. No one at that point in 1979-1980 would even think about doing a, a job that size. Well, we could do it because we had all the capabilities. And of course, again, the aircraft program provided us with the field work, the validation of mm-hmm. what we were mapping with the satellite data. So it was an incredible time. It was a busy time. We attracted a lot of high talent to mm-hmm. Ames to work in this area. So it, it built and built, the, the branch got bigger. Unfortunately, at some point, USGS sort of went back to Menlo Park, and that was sort of a sad day in, in my <laughs> opinion, because here was you know our friends, our family, and the local experts heading back down to Menlo Park. But it was a fabulous time. I'd imagine that there, there's a lot to be said about that, of where 
you know, having that proximity to each other, you know, seeing each other at lunch, walking through a hall or just having that, you know, you know, there's a certain amount of distance that you get when you're in like separate facilities over there. It was a team approach. And it was nice. I don't know who, you know, had the great idea, let's embed some USGS people in this branch at NASA Ames, but it was, it was a fabulous idea. I was talking with, with Gail Thielen, who was one of the, the leaders in our group, about how things came about. And she, and she thought that it was because the branch leadership, and I think it was under Al Stratton, mm-hmm. um, recognized the need for people who knew land use, land cover mapping. And that was the Ellison connection. Because that was always yeah. mm-hmm. his bread and butter. So, so people like Gail and, and Len Gatos, who was the, the office chief, um, had worked so closely with Dick Ellison that they were known as, as land use land, land cover mappers, and they brought that expertise to the branch. And then I think she mentioned the Pacific Northwest project. Mm-hmm. Was that going on when when yeah. you were around with? Yep. We, I guess we, Ethel Bauer yeah, was the lead on that. Yeah, Ethel Bauer. We had uh, really some engineers from other programs at Ames uh, come into the branch, and I, I would say serve as very good project managers to keep sort of the uh, folks that were doing either land use, land cover, or I was doing forestry, we were doing agriculture. One of the first ones was the PNW Pacific Northwest project. We're mapping timber. Mm-hmm. Up there, and that was a that was a big issue back then. Um, a lot of the resource agencies in the states were going, "Where's all our timber?" You know, uh, we have all these companies working out there, the the states working out there, the feds, U.S. Forest Service. How do we how do we put our arms around this resource, and how do we manage our resource? And at that point, you had aerophotography, and it took mm-hmm. a lot of aerophotography to to cover the timbered lands in California, and now all of a sudden we had Landsat. Bruce, does that also fit in? I mean, is the photography, for when you're looking about airborne sciences, it also moves into airborne photography and also like the instru- different instrumentations? To look oh, at very like much ozone. so, yes. So uh, we flew over the years with mapping cameras. We're talking about high-resolution 9 by 9 images on uh, film, and you roll it out on a light table, do your interpretation, and that oh, facilitates... Wow analyzing satellite data because it's at a higher resolution. So over the years, we've flown all the national forests in California, a good part of Oregon, uh, Washington, and then even out farther east where you find forests. We've done a lot of work. That one project for years out on the east coast where the gypsy moth infestation was a big problem. And we had this exotic camera system one time was used by the CIA, very high resolution. We'd fly these forests as the gypsy moth infestation was mounting, and then they could do an assessment of, of where the damage was wow. and uh, how, to, how to manage it. And we had a full-fledged photo lab right here in Building 203, and I was in, very involved in managing oh, yeah. that part of it, the aerial photography part of it. And uh, it was quite an operation for a long, long time. Last time we flew film was in Costa Rica in 2005. So we had some oh, far-ranging projects as well. And the USGS was very involved in those two deployments in 2003 and 2005. uh, We had a colleague from the USGS down there with us helping. And his skills come from photo interpretation. You know, good old Larry Hanley. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had a long talk with him yesterday. (laughs) So anyway, uh, so we're looking at finding ways to manage this archive. We have a huge archive here on Building 144. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to decide how to use it, how to save it. And so that was a, a whole other conversation. That archive is unknown to most people at Ames now. In our heyday, it was pretty well known with Jim. We used to make 
like extensive use of yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, especially yeah. the, the Alaska photos. Mm, oh yeah, and that was, uh, that was quite a project. You, you can't get up your boots <laughs> up there on the ground. We were everywhere <laughs> in yeah. on the north slope of Alaska. So we were tasked with photographing the whole state of Alaska in nine by nine black and white film and nine by nine color infrared film. It took ten years to do it, and it was an amazing project. And uh, I guess there's been talk about trying to do that again sometime, but the resources, the money isn't there. So that archive is here and up in Alaska, and they've been using it, wearing it out, <laughs> wearing the emulsions off uh, to do interpretation and analysis. That's funny, because, you know, with my team, we've been working on, like, you know, taking a lot of, like, photo and video and stuff. But I I, I get a kick because I, I get these references because we have people who are, like, specifically working on that photo archive and that video archive. Because for us, we want to have our own digital copies where anybody can grab it from anywhere in the world yeah. before we send these big boxes off to the National Archives where it sits in a big warehouse with the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> like, like, That's kind of the case. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we want to make it accessible so headed. people can yeah. get it. Uh-huh. And Bruce, how many frames of photography do we oh, have? I'd have to ask Rose to count it up. Easily 750,000, close wow. to a million frames of this mapping camera photography. It's remarkable stuff. Well, I, I, we, I get a kick out of this whole thing because I tend to think of you know, people think of like an earth science division or everything. Like, I think the connotation nowadays immediately moves to like climate change. And that's like critical, super important. But I think people also lose track of like, you know, migration of animals, like erosion, like crop yields. There's um, so you mentioned like, like, like gypsy flies. There's so much other stuff by like that, you know, real practical, solid like data that you need or like, like what, what is, you know, how bad is the, the forest fires like polluting the air that we breathe, you know, like right now, you know, it's so much bigger that people I think even realize. Yeah, I think the disasters are, are a big one. And, and I think when I first came here, Bruce's group was flying fires yeah. with the high altitude aircraft. Mount St. Helens. Mount St. Helens. I came here in 1980, about six months after you got here yeah and uh i just started in right in august of 80 and mount st helens was may of 80 and they were still we were still dealing with mount st helens imagery yeah and pretty remarkable a big role in um the uh, oil spill in the gulf here Mm -hmm. we had the u2 down there flying cameras and instruments from uh jpl and doing an analysis of that and the extent of the damage, especially along the shoreline and all the wetlands damage. And that's Larry Handley, again, our USGS colleague from the National Wetlands Research Center in Lafayette, Louisiana. And he's been a, one of our primary uh, customers for years and years. We've flown photography over the Gulf Coast, along the coast of Florida, the East Coast, on behalf of Fish and Wildlife Service and Larry's group. And they're constantly assessing the extent of change, especially in the Gulf, where a lot of wetlands mm-hmm. have been lost. And that's our hurricane buffer that we're yeah. disposing of, you know. And Larry could sit here and talk for hours about that. <laughs> he recently retired, but he's still very active. So so tell me a little bit about some of the work that you guys are doing now, now. And we you know Susan's going to be coming on over and hanging out with us, moving from Menlo Park well, over. Well, my center does a yeah. wide variety of, of different kinds of projects. So the things that are most prominent right now are things actually related to hazards. Mm-hmm. So um, we're uh, part of a big USGS project called um, Haywired, where we're looking at a potential for a giant earthquake to occur on the Hayward Fault. Yeah, uh, which is overdue. 
apparently. Yes, uh, which is of great interest <laughs> don't, don't to people. Don't quote me on that one, but, but <laughs> it might it might happen. So <laughs> if it might happen, then we should plan for it. Absolutely. Yeah. So the seismologists are having a field day with the actual ground shaking, but what my group does is look at the consequences. Wow. So, you know, how, how long is it going to be before you get your phone service back? You know, how long is your gas going to be out? Um, wh- what bridges are likely to fail? And how do we how do we communicate and how do we plan for that? So, Susan, you know, you're using remote sensing to do some of that. We're using remote sensing to do some of and that. We're using GIS to do a lot of that. What's GIS? Uh, geographic Information Systems. Okay. So it's digital map information and then the tools to to do spatial analysis and and uh, derive new maps and derive new information out of that. So if the earthquake causes fires to occur, which it might mm-hmm. cause, um, how far are they away from the schools? How far are, the, are those fires away from hospitals? Things, things like that kind of proximity analysis. So we, we do a, a lot of that. Um, the other thing we do is look at, um, with regard to hazards, is look at more southern, sudden onset hazards like a, a tsunami yeah, and yeah. Um, work on evacuation routes for people. So working with state and local governments, look at who's living in, in hazard zones. Is some of it like running simulations of like some of if it hits yes. here, this is how it's going to – Yeah, wow. there's a lot of simulation work. There's a lot of general modeling work and a lot of GIS work. I think of all so. of us who are who live in the area <laughs> yes. and work in buildings that were from the Navy in yeah. the 30s, 40s. We care a lot about what's going to happen. Yeah. So the the local governments, you know, the the ABAG Association of Bay Area Governments is is very concerned about you know where all these structures are, and we help them help them map them and put them in a context for the for the hazard events. And it was interesting. I We were doing a uh, fires research project after the large fires in Yellowstone in mm-hmm. 1988. And uh, we were looking at nitrates and phosphates coming out of these fires and trying to figure out how that's related to fire behavior, intensity, you know, how hot was things burned. And what, we spent a lot of time up in Yellowstone. And what I was amazed at is we needed water information. And where do you go? USGS. Because yeah. they collect all of we this. Inf- it's just amazing how much work USGS does out there on the ground that you don't see until you actually go looking for some of this. And, you know, it solved our problem. We need to know water flow. We need to know water quality. USGS, you know, that's where they are. And they're working in a national park. And, of course, that doesn't stop there. They, they go all over the West, in fact, all over we the nation. We work everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere we I mean, put a they, gauge in. They do everything. So <laughs> it seems like every time we started a remote sensing project, when you want to look at some field data, what was going on on the ground, it was always, well, go talk to USGS because they're probably out there making these measurements. And those are huge for any kind of remote sensing. You know, like Bruce's RO photography and the scanner data, it, it's sort of the investigation where, you, where you, you're looking at little clues here and there. And that's, to me, what remote sensing and GIS is all about is putting together the package so you can answer a question. Awesome. So for folks who are listening, um, if you have any questions, comments for everybody, uh, we are on social media at NASA Ames for almost all of our platforms. We use the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Just as a plug, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. Catch our friends over who do Houston, we have a podcast, and also Gravity Assist. You can pick up all of those on whatever podcast app of your choice. You can also go to just nasa.gov and find it all. Or if you have an iPhone or an Android, uh, we have the NASA app. 
and you can head on over to video and audio and you can pick up all the podcasts there. But thank you so much for coming, guys. This has been a lot of fun. Our pleasure. Yeah, yeah thank, thank you. you. Yeah, thank yeah. you.